and very often a line that one of us was going to chuck out we would encourage the other not to chuck out because it was a good line. I had a line in Hey Jude much later that uh, said, the movement you need is on your shoulder. And I, I thought that was me just blocking out the, the, uh, the line. And I said, I'll change that. He said, you won't, you know, that's the best line in it. And similarly, I would encourage him to keep lines in his songs that he didn't think were very good. And I'd say, no, that's a really great line. There was a song of his called Glass Onion, where he had a line about the walrus. Here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. And he wanted to keep it, but he needed to check it with me. He said, what do you think about that line? I said, it's a great line. You know, it's a spoof on the way everyone was always reading into our songs. I said, uh, here we go. You know, we give them another clue to follow. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time, even when you play us backwards. I'm, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we are continuing the story, not of Bungalow Bill, but of one William Campbell and his efforts to conceal and or reveal the sinister truth behind the death of this show's namesake and very subject matter, Mr. James Paul McCartney. Yes, for those of you not in the know, in part one of this series, we did in fact reveal that Paul McCartney has died. Paul McCartney is dead. Yes, Paul is dead and has been dead for the last 50 years. How could we have been so blind? How did we not see the man behind the curtain? Up until now, at least. Now, before we let loose the dogs of war, I must preface this episode with the fact that you know, possibly more than any other episode before this, any of the part two before this, this is certainly a part two where you really need to have listened to the previous instalment to catch up with this one. So obviously go back and download that previous episode of Paul or Nothing, which is just Paul is Dead part one. Go back, do that now. I will quickly wait. I don't mind. And now that you've done that, I'm going to be jumping right back in and picking things up exactly where we left off. However, as you'll see by the title of this episode, this part two is no longer the final part of this story, but now the penultimate one, the middle section, the two towers of this trilogy. Yes, I know, I'm sorry. Once again, I've bit enough more than I could chew, and to maintain a moderately consistent level of output with my content, I've decided to split the final part of this series once again into two subsequent parts, very much like a Harry Potter or Hunger Games-style split. And I'm not doing this, you know, to to cheat the downloads game or just to simply have more episodes and it's not because I'm trying to flood the market with lucrative clickbait Paul is dead content because lord knows there's enough of that already. It's simply because the ever expansive scope of this subject matter just keeps going into new places that I couldn't ever anticipate and I have to react to accordingly. Like I said on the last episode, the more you think you know about Paul is dead, the less you know. And so what I expected to be my short outro verdict and analysis on the whole Paul is dead phenomena has now ended up soaring well over the 20 page mark, well over what the length of even part one was, probably bind now. So like the Hobbit movies, you know, two parts that was originally planned is now going to become three. And I want to do that simply to do the subject matter some justice. I wanted to do it properly rather than a rushed, incoherent mess. So if that's my reason for doing it, well, 
I can live with that. Plus, this means I get to remain more or less on the fence still for this episode, for this part two, and for all of part three, I get to cut loose and go on the full tactical offensive for part three. Not that I want to spoil my potential feelings on this conspiracy, of course. The other reason, the other reason I decided to bisect this episode and push my recording schedule forward was for the simple reason that, for the first time ever really, there is some groundbreaking Paul or nothing news that I have to put out there onto the airways for you folks. Yes, it is rare that anything happens to me on this show or out there in the real world really that bears any worthwhile mention on this podcast at all. But today that all changes as I'm about to pop a certain cherry that for a Paul McCartney podcaster really should have been popped a long time ago. There's articles now circling around the Paul McCartney Facebook groups. I believe it's by NME actually where it's saying fans are outraged that all the tickets for Paul McCartney concerts sold out within seconds and they didn't sell out in seconds a lot of them were actually pre-booked and if you went onto Paul McCartney's website and you joined up as a fan of Paul McCartney you would actually be put into the the lotto or the raffle or the random computer selection that would choose you and allow you to buy tickets early for the shows he was going to be doing three shows one in London one in Liverpool and one up in Scotland and in the lead up to this actually you know I remember a few weeks ago there was some buzz surrounding a new potential UK tour for Paul McCartney and they began to to make their rounds across the internet and upon seeing this information I knew I had one choice and one choice only and that was to not to be mature and responsible and remember myself but to ask you out there the fans on the Twitter to graciously remind me on my behalf as soon as the tickets become available I am notoriously bad at tour dates and remembering when tickets come out and stuff like that and that's why I haven't been to as many gigs as a music podcaster really should have been and one of you out there by the name of uh, okay I actually couldn't find the specific name the specific tweet of the person who did this for me but someone out there a very kind a very knowledgeable a very probably beautiful Twitter follower gave me the nudge gave me the message and I was then able to get every willing friend, family member, co-worker and passerby to sign up to the Paul McCartney website and join up as a friend of Paul McCartney so that would kind of up my chances in the lotto. Obviously I'm a very important person that needs to go to this concert and after a few days of pacing back and forth and harassing friends to see if they'd got the email and checking my own email inbox inappropriately and needlessly frequently I got the nod from Paul's website, I got a text and before I knew it I had tickets to go see Paul McCartney. What was that? Yes, you heard. I, through the grace of the entire pantheon of gods up there in heaven and down there in hell, have managed to score tickets to go see Paul motherfucking McCartney. Holy shit. Oh, fuck. I cannot fucking believe this. I'm still reeling from it. It's actually been a couple of days since I found out, but I'm still processing it. It's absolutely fucking crazy. I can't. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so fucking good. Of course, you know, the tour managers and Ticketmaster were aware of the kind of pull and clout that an influential Paul McCartney podcaster such as myself can bring to such an event. They clearly saw my name on the list and instantly knew that they had to ensure my presence to at least one of these gigs. And, you know, logically this would mean pushing down one of you lesser normal folk uh, down the list that you wouldn't be able to come, but that would allow me, the important uh, demigod that I am, uh, to go instead of one of you Untermension who wouldn't be able to appreciate it properly and podcast about it. Obviously, this is a great service I'm doing and they're allowing me to create some content for you. Everyone's a winner. And you'll, you, know, you won't be able to go, perhaps, but you'll be able to listen to me and how my trip was. That's, that's probably better for you in a way. Obviously, this was an, an easy trade for the organisers of the new Paul McCartney Freshen Up Tour because making sure that a sarcastic, irreverent, 20-something, barely popular podcaster attends the gig will be of utter importance for their promotion. 
you know, it's not like Paul McCartney's going to sell out in seconds, regardless of what I say or not. No, but seriously, I am so excited for this gig. Oh my gosh, I am so happy. I wish I could take you all with me, really. But I will, in fact, be taking my long-term buddy, podcasting co-host, and friend of the show. He's actually been on twice now. I'm going to be taking my, my good friend, Mr. Tom Quee. I cannot wait. We'll be going down to Oxford in the day, just hanging out. We'll go down late later at night. We'll be remaining totally sober. That's going to be a very strong point. I don't want to miss a single part of this show. And we'll come back and probably do a podcast then and there into the night. Obviously, you guys know what happened the last time me and Tom did a reactionary podcast before we'd let things settle in and process a little bit. So I'll be looking forward to that one. But hey, content is content. Holy shit, I'm going to see Paul McCartney. I never see live shows, really. I, th- I think I've only seen, like, three major live acts, and that was Stevie Wonder, The Bare Naked Ladies, and Jamiroquai, which is a weird threesome, but I-, I really don't doubt that Paul, in all of his glory, is going to be able to top that. You know, he's going he's gonna to give Stevie a run for his money, definitely. Fuck, a couple of months ago... Um, I was broke as well, so I'm glad that this has happened now when I'm a little more financially stable and stuff, so I'm glad that this tour has happened when it has. And, you know, I started this podcast two years ago, and I hadn't even considered that I hadn't seen him live. You know, I never saw Tom Waits live, and I did did a podcast on him, but, you know, Tom Waits doesn't tour, and Paul was touring, and it, it, it never happened where he'd been in the country and available to see at the time. Like, yeah, he actually hasn't played in England for quite a while now, so this is going to be a real last chance for me, really. I'm not saying Paul's going to, you know, stop touring tomorrow, but he is getting on, so you really do have to make hay whilst the sun is shining. The specific gig on the Freshen Up tour that I'm going on is the London show on the 16th of December. I'll try and get some footage of it, perhaps try and put that on the YouTube as well. I absolutely cannot believe I'm going. It feels crazy to say it. I honestly can't believe it. I hope you are as as as, as excited as I am, because I'm going to be sharing it all with you in a very excited and frantic way in a few months. It's going to be fun, isn't it? Obviously, I'm not really going to be seeing Paul McCartney, though, am I? I'm going to be seeing a man pretending to be Paul, because Paul actually died in 1966 and was replaced either by a clone or Billy Shears Campbell. Whichever one it is, that's the one I'm going to be seeing on December 16th. Perhaps I'll be able to see the mask slip off or something and reveal once for all that Paul really did die. But before I start postulating on random mad conspiracies that make no sense at all... That's an unrelated comment to this episode, obviously. I really should crack on with the housekeeping. Of course, we're going to begin shamelessly with our Patreon page and our weekly slash bi-weekly slash monthly appeal to you, the fans of the show out there. Yes, you. I know there are hundreds of you who listen, possibly may maybe thousands, if I'm lucky, and even if only a small percentage of you uh, really dig the show and really like the show enough to express a certain amount of thanks for that, then obviously you can join our Patreon page. That is the best place for you to contribute to the show in a small way, help us keep the lights running. Obviously, running a show like this isn't free. I do do the show for free. I never want ads to be on it or anything. If you want to see the show grow, check out our Patreon page. You can become a patron of the the show for even just $1 a month, which, you know, when I I used to do charity door-to-door knocking, we'd always say things like, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's less than the price of a cup of coffee and things like that are so, are so patronising, but a dollar really isn't a lot at all. But hey, if you'd like to see more episodes come out more frequently, allow me to do this more full-time, then hey, check out our Patreon. Plus, every dollar really is appreciated, and for the sake of true transparency, the easiest way to get on the show is by becoming a patron. Hashtag nepotism. That can be found at patreon.com slash McCartney podcast. 
Speaking of easy, the easiest way to find some bonus McCartney content is to head right on over to our sister blog, which is at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. The blog is basically the place where I write all things I can't quite fit onto the show. I was actually writing an article on Egypt Station that was meant to go yesterday, actually, but it looks like that is going to go into my Redux slash part two slash apology for my I don't know, come on to me episode. But you can check out many other articles, including ones where I rank Wings' entire discography and singles. I talk about the song that were written for Linda McCartney, an article about the songs written for John. Uh, I, I also improved several albums in my own weird and unique way. And one of the most popular ones on there for some reason is the top 10 reasons why Linda McCartney doesn't suck. So if you want to check out any of those articles, head on over to paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. The best and the most effective way to get in contact with me personally is through our email. I check the inboxes every day like a real saddo, but I do love to read out your correspondence whenever I get the chance. First and foremost, I want to hear your Paul McCartney story. How did you get into him? What was the first record you ever bought or heard? Maybe you play his songs on an instrument. Maybe you've seen him, met him. Either way, whatever your Paul McCartney story is, I want to know. This is a show made by a fan for the fans, and I always want to infuse the show with that sense of community spirit. But if that's not up your alley, then please write in to discuss the music of the show. Is there a review that I got particularly right or wrong? Is there a song that you want to talk about that you you want to warn me about maybe? Is there a fact or trivia nugget about an album that I just need to know? Was there something I missed perhaps? For any of that and more, please email me at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Of course, the fastest and most immediate way to get in contact in any form though is through our Twitter. That's the central hub for the show where I get to post polls, silly photos and clickbait quote photos as well as all updates for the show and you can find us there at McCartney Pod. Follow us right now. Speaking of following, we're going to follow on with our YouTube and Facebook pages. You can simply find them by going on the, the respective websites and time again Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. I'm currently working on re-uploading all of the lost episodes that have been blocked by copyright claims recently so keep your eyes peeled for a whole bunch of new episodes on the YouTube very soon and finally we get on to the iTunes reviews. Yes, we are two years running into this bad boy and I'm actually yet to receive a single review on iTunes. I know some of that's been down to the fact that the title on iTunes for some reason is slightly different than Poor or Nothing uh, or Paul McCartney Podcast for some reason. But hey, if you can take five minutes out of your day to log on to iTunes and find the show, leave us a little five-star review, say why you like us. I would appreciate that more than anything that I've just been rambling on about. A couple of five-star reviews really helps the show get pushed up in the rankings and hopefully makes us a little bit more popular. A few more people can download and listen. But yeah, the housekeeping has come to pass as all things do. We've gotten that out of the where you can breathe a sigh of relief and we can move on to what the people paid well hopefully paid to join our patreon i know you probably haven't paid to come and see hashtag bringing up the patreon page again but yeah let's just grit our teeth dig deep and try and uncover some more of the madcap insanely weird oddball mystery behind the so-called supposed possible mysterious death of our old poor paul mccartney deep breath now There are an infinite number of ways to view the universe, and there are an infinite number of people to interpret it in that way, and it is real and true to those certain people. You know, meaning that in the vein of Schrodinger's reality, Paul is both alive and dead somewhere out there in the cosmos, and and, an infinite number of Paul McCartneys are actually alive and dead. But we are more concerned with our Paul in this reality. What happened to our Paul? Is Paul dead? Well, yes, Paul is fucking dead. Or at least it appears that way through a certain specific lens of reality. For those of you who didn't take out your notebooks last time, the the tale goes that on an indeterminable and 
oddly unspecific date in 1966, Paul McCartney, due to indeterminably sinister reasons, crashed his Austin Healey and was killed due to a large wound in his head. Then, to keep the money machine rolling in, that was the Beatles, the cabal, consisting of anyone and everyone from MI5, the CIA, Freemasons, Satanists, the Illuminati and the man, decided to hold a McCartney lookalike contest, then force the winner of said contest to get plastic surgery and spend the rest of his life living, breathing and playing as Paul McCartney. Or the same story again, but with a clone. Yeah, it sounded a little more plausible the last episode, I must admit, uh, you know, saying it out now seems a little bit silly. But yeah, that's the general gist of what we're working with here. On last said episode, we specifically covered the backstory of Paul is Dead, all of the hidden clues on the album covers of all the Beatles records, as well as as well as a few of the quirkier aspects of the conspiracy, including Paul's apparent secret love child in Germany, the Terry Knight record St. Paul, as well as Ringo's own recent tabloid meltdown. It was a strange episode indeed, and it's about to get a whole lot stranger. Audio Clues Part 1. Lyrics, Lyrics and More Lyrics. So, last episode we covered some of the more famous visual cues and clues from the Beatles' oeuvre, but now let's keep this podcast fresh and light to the touch and start to play around with some of the more audio-based clues. You know, the clues that are more suited for an actual podcast format. Yes, as I mentioned last episode, this is indeed the conspiracy to tantalise and ensnare all the senses, though touch and taste may be a bit of a stretch, but you never know. Now, the idea of audio clues being hidden on albums is such a common trope in pop culture, and the idea of people fucking around with playing records backwards has existed since recording music has existed, because recording music came around with record players, records spin one way, it wouldn't be long before people started spinning them backwards and realising you can do all sorts of things with said sounds. But, as with oh so many facets of our existence, its first significant use can indeed be traced back to the Fab Four with the growing popularity of the Paul is Dead phenomena. Maybe not, you know, the first ever recorded incidents of people using records backwards for a certain effect, but it's the incident that definitely brought it to the wider public attention, kind of like the Beatles and Indian music or avant-garde, for example. As we will discuss later at the end of this episode, it was this part of the conspiracy is whereby the Beatles or the fake Paul or Beatles and the fake Paul together decided that the best way to inform the public of Paul's death would be by hiding clues within the music of the Beatles albums. You know, there are a lot of people going to be listening to these albums, so many people, and just in the way of, you know, an infinite number of monkeys on an infinite number of typewriters, if you've got so many people listening to this mass media, then you'll definitely be able to slip messages out. Now, the other side of the conspiracy is that this use of the mass media and this mass appeal that the Beatles had was actually being used by the Cabal, maybe through Fall, or maybe even through the other Beatles without them knowing it, to get satanic messages, Illuminati messages, capitalistic messages, communist messages out there, you know, take take your fucking pick, out there to the people and influence them that way in that kind of slow, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World sort of way. It makes perfect sense, really. They were already hiding clues on their album covers and in their photographs, but as Beatles, they would be actually able to, you know, bring to bear their master, their mastery of the studio and of music with every audio trick they developed over their short careers to get this information that was of dire importance out there into the public sphere, whether the public knew it or wanted it or not. As I explained last time, it was of the utmost importance that the Beatles disseminate this information subliminally and under the radar, for the all-powerful unseen cabal Illuminati vampires were powerful enough to obviously murder and replace Paul. 
So the same could be done to any of the other three. And maybe it was. I mean, fuck me. In doing research for Paul is Dead, I found that there is a John is Dead conspiracy as well. Not in that John was going to come clean about the Paul is Dead conspiracy and he was shot by an agent posing as Mark David Chapman. No, no. The idea that John died first and on the help cover, the semaphore that doesn't in fact spell help is actually meant to say like, you know, John Lennon replacement vocal or something like that and it's like oh my god this this just goes deeper and deeper this wonderland rabbit hole I don't know if I'll if I'll ever get to the end of it this is like my my Fitzcarraldo boat over that South African mountain Jesus Christ but yeah the Beatles had to you know use misdirection and coincidence and hearsay as excuses if they were ever to be questioned you know because they they would just be able to turn around and say no Mr. Illuminati Lord Mr. Cabal cult member there's that's not a clue about revealing Paul's death it was just us fooling around in the studio mumbling incidentally backwards or it was just an audio accident or something and as far as we are aware it was the perfect crime unless you look into the fact that John Lennon was murdered and George Harrison was murdered and the worst crime Ringo was allowed to live now, whilst the use of this subtle method would be used primarily to help keep four slash the other three remaining Beatles alive, it could also be argued that whilst the you know, mass market appeal element is one of the major factors, this subterfuge could have been the only real way to actually get the message out in one piece into the minds of an unsuspecting public. Maybe this is the only way that people could ever be introduced to this idea on this scale, you know, without simply going insane like some sort of HP Lovecraft space monster. Because simply coming out with the truth, you know, besides getting you killed, it would be too much to bear for some people that there, there are these forces working against us, giving us bad vibes. And the idea would also just be too widely mocked as well. People just aren't ready for this kind of information and they would just shirk it off as poppycock. You know, very much in the same way that, you know, the government can't tell us the truth about aliens. A person is smart, but people are dumb and panicky, dangerous and stupid, and you know it. And we are not prepared to handle the truth. You can't handle the truth! Now, some people see Mr. Billy Shears as the enemy, but I personally subscribe to the idea that rather like Stanley Kubrick getting in over his head when he made a pact to when he made a pact with the devil to fake the Apollo moon landing whilst filming 2001: A Space Odyssey, I I see it as the young Billy Shears Campbell. Soon after getting involved, he too realised he was in way over his head and wanted out, but obviously he couldn't get out. Which what leads me to believe narratively in a certain sense that he would have been working with the other Beatles. Maybe they were trying to get the message out on their own at first and then fall after a certain amount of posturing as the puppet of the cabal became a double agent and started working with them as well. Though then again that could just be what they would want me to think isn't it? The lyrical clues started almost instantly after Paul's death and it's easy to understand why writers can only ever write about their own experiences on a certain Marxist level and the thing that the Beatles were experiencing was a lot of men in suits killing Paul, possibly sacrificing him to a dark cabal's god and replacing him with some tosser named Billy so of course they were going to be writing about this shit. Even if they were not as some sort of resistance movement trying to intentionally get these clues out to us to find, it's very possible that they were subconsciously placed in that kind of stream of consciousness way that the Beatles were writing and maybe the Beatles were simply unable to contain such a horrendous truth within them and it was expressed only through their music. Yeah, perhaps the Illuminati cabal really should have done some basic psychology theory before starting this whole thing, eh? 
So what I'm going to do for you right now is play for you as many of the Paulie's Dead audio clues that I could find and illegally source. However, to make it as fair as possible, I'm not going to contaminate the results. I will tell you the song that it's from and then I'll play the, the, the relevant clip without telling you really what you're supposed to be deciphering. Then I'll give the answer away as to what the clue actually supposedly is and then I'll play you the clip again just to see how perceptive you were. If you really aren't up to date with any Paul is Dead clues though then please this could be a little fun game. Uh, you know just take the time to get a pen and paper or get a word document up. Seriously seriously try this. This could be really fun. Try and find and spot the hidden messages within before I tell you. Maybe even write them down, write down your results and send them in as an email or on the Twitter. It will be very interesting to see what you guys actually hear before I tell you what it is. Because that's what these clues are meant to be. Obviously you're not meant to actively be looking for them, but it's interesting to see if any of these clues, if they do exist or don't exist, are actually able to be spotted and interpreted in the correct way that they are presented or if it is just kind of something a little bit garbled and the fact that you're told the answer at the start warps your perception somewhat and you're kind of forced to hear that answer. So we're going to be avoiding that. But yeah, if you take part in this little game, please email me some of your results to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or let me know on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Right, here we go. Strawberry Fields Forever. So we begin with Lennon's Strawberry Fields Forever, and from this 1966 release, we can see that the clues pretty much started right from the get-go, right after the crash, and... That makes sense, really. Why wait to get this stuff out there? And it makes sense that, of course, it would be John who would break the silence first. He was closest with Paul, as we all know. It's an overt statement and confession indeed, as he signals out here towards the end of the song in the fade-out, as you can quite clearly hear this off-played clip. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear what John said right at the end there? Go on, I'll give you one more time, as it is the first clue. Here we go. There is no turning back now. John Lennon, there in 1966, into that microphone, is indeed saying, I buried Paul. Yes, you heard me, people. You know exactly what I said. You know what he said. I buried Paul. What more do you need? That's it. That's your full confession, Your Honour. I rest my case. Case closed. Let's hear it again. John, I think it's safe to say that we are starting off rather strong here with that testimony. Thank you very much. Let's carry on. Okay, and after starting off with that really, really good one, a really well-known one as well, we have to move on to a one that's, um, well, even in my most unbiased moods, I, I really can't commit to it. But hey, maybe you will spot it instantly and there'll be egg on my face. So let's go through this one. Also, just for completion's sake also, this is from Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And our second chronological clue can be found on the very opening slash title track of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Of course, again, this makes sense. This was, this was the first major album to feature all the clues and directly reference the fact that Paul is dead. This is what sparked the conspiracy. And there are actually two parts of this song that are of note, and I'll play you the more reputable of the two first. This is found in the chorus of the song, and it sounds like this. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely, 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 Sergeant Pepper's Lonely,
one more time. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Oscar Band. Well, you probably didn't hear it then, did you? But that's not the way to play the song if you want to hear the clue. And to reveal the secrets, yes people, we finally get to do it, we must play it backwards. We are already experimenting with the backwards tape looping shit, and why not really? The Beatles have been experimenting with backwards tape loops ever since Rain and Tomorrow Never Knows, so it makes sense that they would include the same subliminal techniques to get this message out. Let's hear that clip backwards now. No do-overs, did you hear that? Oh, okay, go on. I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to do it twice now for each one, aren't I? Some of these are just so short as well. But yeah, one more time, please. So if you play the refrain of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely backwards, it becomes, It was a fake moustache. It was a fake moustache. Now, let's see if you can pick up on that a little more clearly now. Ooh, that one's quite spooky, isn't it? Of course, the fake moustache is referring to Billy Shears. Obviously, this is in reference to the fact that he probably didn't have a moustache at the time that he won or and or came second in the Paul McCartney lookalike competition. And the false moustache was grown later, possibly to hide scars during his plastic surgery. The next one that I never even considered that would be a part of this conspiracy or this episode, uh, and I added this right at the end really, uh, is during the last few re refrains of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Sergeant Pepper's Lonely, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts. And there's some rather unintelligible babble that's layered in rather unobtrusively, and it's all coming from Paul. You're probably very familiar with it. Don't worry, I didn't hear it the first time either. And yes, I have messed around with this clip and neither slowing it down nor speeding it up had any real beneficial effect, so I'm not gonna do that for you now, but one more time again. The shouting voice in the background there, and I'm not making this up. Apparently, he's literally shouting, Paul is dead, he's really, really dead. Or, Paul is dead, Paul is dead, Paulie, Paulie, Paulie's dead. So, now that we apparently know this for a fact, let's see if we can make out those words a little more clearly this time around. I don't know about you, but the fact that we really can't hear him clearly due to the music makes this one very unconfirmed, even on the best of days. And, you know, maybe you could say that the fact that we can't hear him properly is part of the subliminal technique. And, you know, they're just saying, Paul is dead, Paul is really dead, or Paulie, Paulie's dead. And they're trying to get it out as soon as possible. But I'm really not hearing that one. I'm not really going to shit on these Paulie's dead clues this episode, folks. I really am not. I really am trying to stay as impartial as possible. But this one I never got and I think was added much later it's not one of the classic ones at all. With a little help from my friends. On to the second song from Pepper, our third, and we have With a Little Help from My Friends. And since the first two Pepper tracks are essentially one large track with a literal passing of the torch from Paul, it's only fitting that the clues would continue to through onto Ringo's part. This song is one big literal and symbolic handing over of the reins over to Billy Shears, as we can hear here. 
and obviously that's the iconic Billy Shears line and you can look at this in two ways. Firstly, it's the rather surface level where it is the band introducing us to a quote-unquote new member of the band. Why was there a new member? Maybe because one of them's died and had to be replaced. That's, what, that's why there's a new member. But rather interestingly, they have laid it out as Ringo rather than Paul as Billy Shears. This is probably a bit of classic misdirection. Keep us focused on Ringo. Maybe the, the, the idea of Fall being Billy Shears for this moment was a little too obvious. Billy Shears, again, it's, 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 it's such a random name to randomly come up in this song seemingly for no reason. Surely it must have some significance outside of its oral qualities. Though Ringo was the actor Beatles, so maybe it is rather fitting. The other possible interpretation is that it's not meant to be taken as Billy Shears, but instead it's Billy's here. This one is a bit of a stretch, but it's rather like one of those magic eye illusions where like once you see it one way, you can't see it the other way again. And I do kind of hear Billy's here sometimes. And obviously it's the idea that they are introducing Billy Campbell or Billy Shears into the band, this guy who is replacing Paul. <laughs> And the use of Ringo and his wonderfully monotone voice is a wonderful bit of distraction whilst we're being sold the idea of a man named Billy being quote-unquote in the Beatles. And the lyrics point to the idea of a guy only getting through a difficult situation with quote-unquote a little help from his friends. Obviously Billy wouldn't be able to do, to do this on his own and maybe this song is him thanking the Beatles for welcoming him into the fold or even into the Paul is Dead counter conspiracy. Coming in fourth we have She's Leaving Home, a song about the tragic loss of a loved one and its effect on others. Hint, hint. And it's the opening line that Paul is Deadites are most interested in. Let's hear that now. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. And once again, quickly. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. I'm sure you all know that that line indeed was Wednesday morning at five o'clock. This is apparently the line that indicates the time of Paul's fatal car crash. Now, where you see the spiderweb threads starting to make connections, and as we referenced last episode, a rather spooky uh, amount of credence is given to this clue for the fact that if you turn your copy of Sgt. Pepper over, you will see that this is the very lyric and line that George Harrison is literally pointing to with his finger. Remember, this is the very first cover of its kind, with all the lyrics to be printed in that way, so for George to point at a specific lyric, and for it to have no specific or significant meaning, is highly unlikely. Come on. Lovely Rita, Meter Maid. Then we're going to take a quick pit stop at Lovely Rita, Meter Maid. And there's really not a specific lyric that I'm going to be pointing to here. But according to several versions of the story, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it yet on this episode, but one of the Paul is Dead uh, fables involves Paul picking up a fan or possibly a prostitute named Rita. Maybe even a drug dealer named Rita, you never know. And then she is a girl who goes for a bit mad for one reason or another, possibly due to the shock of, of the fact that Paul is giving her a lift of all people and she didn't know, perhaps. And this is possibly what caused the car to crash in the first place. 
Maybe Rita was a sleeper cell, Manchurian candidate type agent who was there as part of the sacrifice. We don't know. We actually, um, it's not even confirmed if this Rita or the passenger survived or died actually. But anyway, here's a clip from that awesome song for the sake of it. Day in the life. Then of course we come on to Lennon's insurmountable possible best Beatles song ever, closing song to Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is A Day in the Life. I think we should just play the opening verse and let it speak for itself, you know, before we speak about it. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. And though the news was rather sad Well, I just had to laugh I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed crowd of people stood and stared They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was on the house of this, my friends, is a moment-by-moment -moment retelling of the death of Paul McCartney. And on top of that, it details the exact moments where Lennon actually reads about the lies in the paper the very next day. It all fits. He blew his mind out in a car. Paul died in a car crash. Either way, he suffered massive head trauma or was decapitated. A crowd of people stood and stared. This is the crowd that would gather around the crash during, during the cleanup. And then the line, nobody was really sure if he was from the House of Lords. Nobody was really sure, you know, who, who is this famous man? They've definitely seen him before somewhere. Or maybe this is a reference to the fact that the crowds now see this fake Billy Shears Fall character, you know. They've seen this face before, but they're not really sure who it is. It's someone else. It's all just one great reference and allusion to the immediate and effective mind games, deception and misdirection that surrounded the crash and Paul is dead altogether. The song as a whole, with its iconic McCartney interlude after the musical orgasm, becomes a ritual, a literal ritual where it's, you know, creating this form and he's about, they're about to bring this fake full McCartney star child into existence through this cosmic musical creation moment, of course, after a great sacrifice. And as the ritual begins, you could really just play the whole musical segment against footage of the surgeries undertook by William Campbell in a horrid black and white graininess, or maybe against the dark rituals of the cabal that they were enacting in order to commit these evil deeds. And that musical orgasm goes something like this. Lennon also makes an allusion wanting to bring Paul back to life, which goes like this. Of 
obviously turning on, meaning to bring someone back to life, to switch them on, like they've been off, like they've been dead. And, just make a note, you are going to have to remember the phrase turn me on or turning on, as that will be coming up very shortly. Lennon wants Paul to come back to life. After the musical orgasm, he wakes up and he is reborn through the power of music. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. I am the walrus. I Am The Walrus, Lennon's only contribution really to the Magical Mystery Tour and in many ways the standout song of the album, is full of nonsense lyricism and is overtly indecipherable. It is random to the extent that you could apply any meaning at all you ever wanted to it and is approachable from any intellectual sphere. Unfortunately, rather like I'm going to describe with Revolution 9, I think the only fair, fair way to approach such uh, incomprehensibly silly lyricism in a fair manner is to not do it at all. Since you can approach it in any way, it really lessens the impact of what the meaning would be if anyone could take a different meaning from it, you know what I mean? But arguably, the lyrics would pale in comparison, even if they were important anyway, as there's the inclusion of this clip from King Lear right at the end, and it has raised a few eyebrows indeed. And not only am I going to play the clip from the song, but some intrepid YouTuber has found the specific clip from the specific recording of King Lear for the BBC. So here's the Beatles version. <laughs> And now the isolated BBC clip. Slave! Thou hast slain me! Villain, take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. And give the letters which thou find'st about me to Edmund, Earl of Gloucester. Seek him out upon the British party. Oh, untimely death! Death! I know thee well, a serviceable villain, as duteous to the vices of thy mistress as badness would desire. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rest you. It's clear that even to the layman, we have some pretty blatant allusions to death here. I mean, I don't know if it could get more obvious if he wanted to. The fact that it mentions an untimely death and a serviceable villain and a confused declaration of is he dead? All point to an obvious conclusion that all lead me to believe that John thought that this was the perfect scene, the perfect way to draw people's attention to these specific topics in this song. After all this nonsense, we have something very clear, we have something very tangible and in order amidst all this chaos, and it stands out all the clear because of it. Perhaps the story of King Lear, uh, you know, a story where a figurehead dies and the three remaining daughters fight over the remaining scraps of the kingdom, could also represent the turmoil of the other three Beatles within the band dynamic since the loss of Paul. But for John to put in something so formal and rigid and purposeful within something so psychedelic and all over the place seems very, very unlikely. We are meant to take this seriously. 
and we are meant to single it out, and we have, and it all points to death. This is also a good time as any to bring up the subject of walruses, a sentence that I'm sure has never been said nor will ever be spoken again. But the subject of walruses and being a walrus and being likened to that of a walrus is an intangibly significant element of the whole Paul is dead conspiracy. Walruses are big stuff here, people. Pay attention. According to the Paul is dead experts, the walrus is a symbol for death in Nordic and Scandinavian cultures, and even the word walrus in Greek means corpse. So the idea that Paul is always, and as we will see in the next clue, he will always be associated with walruses in these proceedings. And this is one of the many subtle, obscure references that the Beatles had left the clue hunters that would slip past the Illuminati cabal censors. Again, if something's walrus related in this story, it ain't good. Glass onion. Moving on to the least well-hidden clue of the bunch, and it is featured on the next album, The Beatles, aka The White Albums, and the song in question is Glass Onion, a song that frequently references many other Beatles songs throughout their discography, but the part we are going to look at is this part. I told you about the war is mean man You know that we're as close as can be, man Well, here's another clue for you Okay, there we are, and there really is no need to play that one again, but we shall anyway. Well, here's another clue for you, Mom. The walrus was Paul. But yeah, that is literally just John saying, well, here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. There was a huge speculation and investigation into who the walrus was and what the walrus meant in that song, and John just comes right out with it here. Where do we go? That is a rap, ladies and gentlemen. Is this a referent that is just meant to be so blatant that they are trying to see what they are getting away with at this point? Either the Cabal or the Beatles? Maybe it's a piece of CIA misdirection and there's something far more sinister that we have missed in the lyrics than that we haven't gone into. But even if you are unlike me and you can take this for face value for what it is, then yes, these lyrics, of course, point to the whole walrus fracas that we just mentioned. Then, of course, Paul is a walrus, walrus corpse, walrus and death. Paul is dead. Perhaps John was just getting sick of it at this point. Perhaps he was losing faith in the Beatles and this was just the time when he had to just come right out and say it. Maybe the cabal was simply a little bit lax that day or maybe they were just so happy that they could flaunt this and they just let it through. While my guitar gently weeps. Swiftly moving on to While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and we have the first real contribution from George towards unveiling the truth. But he was the quiet Beatle, so I guess I can give him a pass there. And the part I'm about to play for you is one that I know that a vast majority of you would be familiar with, but what if I told you that you hadn't been listening hard enough? Let's hear that song, please. That part is taken from towards the end of the song, during the final solo and fade out. You think there aren't any words, really, but I tell you there are. Just listen again, just one more time. Anyone figured it out yet? Well, since I can't hear any of you on this end, I suppose, I better just let you know the answer. Those classically anguished, painful moans that we hear from George, if you listen back again carefully, are crying out, Paul, 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 Paul. 
I know some of you heard it, but let's do it again. Paul, Paul, Paul. George is in mourning here in front of us. We all know why he and the guitar are gently weeping now. George isn't really trying to come out against the conspiracy here. He's just trying to deal with it emotionally. I'm so tired. The next one on this list is a pretty famous one, actually, and I can see why. The Lennon Penn tract, I'm So Tired, has a very obviously intriguing little bit of nonsense speak at the end of the song, and it literally is just garbled nothing at first glance. And for Paul, his deadheads was positively inviting a closer inspection. Don't forget, folks, in spite of its plain cover, the White Album has some of the finest production on any Beatle album. So for a little audio blot like this to be written off as a mistake or an accident or as just something random for the sake of it is highly questionable once again. The Beatles were pros by this point, pros with greater and greater control over their work and masters of the studio, so there really are no accidents at this point. It's here for some reason. Let's just hear that clue now. Play it normally for me, please. And again. Yeah, we're really not going to get too much from that. But when reversed, said gibberish anti-talk at the end of this song clearly becomes something else entirely. And I'm really going to ask you to listen to this one particularly close because it's a pretty big historical heavyweight. And it's pretty spooky once you get it. Let's play it in reverse now. Again. And again. I hope we are all on the same page now here, folks, because I'm going to look pretty silly now if we are all out of sync. Then again, I don't know how many of these you've gotten by this point now, so I may already be looking quite silly. But what's wrong with that? But seriously, if you've been doing rather well, or whether you've been totally lost for the last chunk of this show, please do, do let me know. Drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Getting back onto the track, what John is apparently saying in this supposedly pointless little piece of audio is, Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him. Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him. Okay, we're going to immediately go back to that because I know someone just went bullshit, so we're just going to quickly go over that again. And again. I don't know, folks. Even my most cynical and faithless self cannot help but kind of hear that phrase in those last few seconds. And again, for the fact that we know that the Beatles could and did similar things makes it all the spookier and more legitimate in my eyes. Don't know what you think. Anyway, what's next? Don't pass me by. With Don't Pass Me By, we move on to a much more basic lyrical allusion to this conspiracy. Whilst Ringo sang, with a little help from my friends, this is the first clue that he has penned himself, which is fitting really, because that means all three of them, and possibly Paul, have a moment to talk about Paul is Dead on this album. And being a Ringo Paul is Dead song, rather, rather fittingly, it only has the one clue. Um, it's only one line of interest, but it is so interesting that you really can't ignore it. Let's hear it one time, please. I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your head. You said that you would be late. Yes, folks, you heard Ringo correctly, but let's just play it once more just in case. 
sorry that I doubted you, I was so unfair. You were in a car crash, and you lost your hair. You said that you would be late. <laughs> he literally just said, you were in a car crash, and you lost your head. And when you go back a few minutes ago and compare this to the line in A Day in the Life, where John goes, he blew his mind out in a car, and... I don't know about you, but I cannot help but start connecting certain dots and start to wonder what this band's obsession with cranial-based car crashes and injuries is. Oh wait, hmm, maybe it's to do with the fact that fucking Paul died in a car crash and his head came off. Let's just hear that one more time, Ringo. Yeah, that's pretty damn conclusive if you ask me, everybody. Revolution 9. Okay, now brace yourselves, folks. This is the mother load. This is the Moby Dick, both for the White Album and for Paulie's Dead Theorists everywhere because this was the first big clue that was sent out on the airwaves and made thousands of fans rabid and thirsty for more when they first heard it on the radio and nearly made the disc jockey jump out of his seat with surprise but again more on them slightly later in the next episode the supermassive clue revealed on Lennon, Ono and possibly Harrison's, possibly uh, Paul and possibly Ringo's Revolution 9 and many of the uh, subtle and further minor ones are some of the key introductory, most prolific, most popular and most widely accepted clues that point towards a dead Paul McCartney reality scape. I know, folks, there is going to be a lot of bad energy in this one, I'm sorry. I hope you were braced like I told you. But first, let's hear that iconic introduction to this song, shall we? Number nine, 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 and again, number nine, number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Pretty familiar stuff, right? You either love it or you hate it, as it signals the interestingly unique song ahead. I also re remember hearing that. I also remember that being sung to me quite ironically by the Paul McCartney of the Bootleg Beatles at Sutton Caulfield Town Hall a few years ago when the band were asking for requests and me and my three friends in the very back row in the top left-hand corner being the hilariously unfunny teenagers that we were started shouting Revolution 9 and the Paul bandmate no less began to tease us with a rendition of this one. He was going number nine, number nine, number nine. Obviously they didn't do it. They went straight into I want to hold your hand. But anyway, once more let's begin the, the, our own ritual and and play that clip of number nine backwards. Ready? Are you sure? Here we go. Again. Did you get it? Be honest. This is one heck of a bandwagon not to be on, so I'll give you one more go, you know, out of good faith. When played backwards, the repetitive phrase number nine becomes turn me on dead man, turn me on dead man. Remember what I said about turn me on it back in a day in the life? 
This is John's other major allusion to Paul's death and rebirth. This is achieved from a very particular way that the emphasis is being held on the notes in the particular phrase number nine, number nine, number nine. And like quite a few of today's clues, a worryingly high amount of today's clues when you think about it. This one is pretty much on the money and you can't deny that that fucking sounds like Turn Me On Dead Man. The symbolic and thematic link to A Day in the Life and the fact that it's changed from, you know, wanting to turn him on to a request to turning me on. Maybe that's a reference to John wanting to, to be with Paul. Maybe he doesn't feel like life is worth living. Or maybe it is Paul himself, the dead Paul, asking to be turned back on and not to be replaced by this guy. Now, some of the other stuff is actually pretty lengthy to describe, and there was a cheesy documentary that compiled similar clues a few years ago and did it far better than I ever could, called Cranberry Sauce, The Paul is Dead Hoax, and I'm just going to play you a clip of that now. Big shout out to them. Fantastic Paul is Dead documentary. Let's just hear that clip. This is a long collage of sounds, of snatches of conversation, of fragments of music, and the tapes are all mixed as a montage, apparently in a random pattern, and on first hearing, unintelligible. The total feeling of the work comes close to that of musique concrète. And someone finally discovered that if you play the right channel of the stereo alone, all kinds of things happen that are masked in the two-channel version. First, you can hear a voice talking about hitting a light pole and getting to a surgeon. From there, Revolution 9 drifts into a full stream of consciousness Freudo-Joycean montage, and it is very, very easy to hear in it the kind of splintered and pain-racked thought flashes that might be going on in the brain of a musician who has been badly hurt in an automobile accident. My wings are broken, and there are flames. Continuing frontwards on the cut, many strange sounds can be heard, including car horns, a car crash, and fire burning. Must have got it in the shoulder blades. There is absolution, sacraments, final rites. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. There are the voices of women. There is music and a remembered football game. Hold that line. Live. Live. But then there is the final fade out. And there is death. When this song is played totally in reverse, more interesting phrases can be heard besides the famous Turn Me On, Dead Man. While the crashes, screams, and fire can still be heard, after about one minute and ten seconds, a faint Let Me Out can be heard, apparently from someone burning in a car. At two minutes and thirty seconds, the fire sounds are very clear, and we hear the phrase, There were two. There are none now. Paul and Rita. At five minutes and thirty-five seconds, we hear someone screaming, let me out. Let me out.
Assuming for a moment that there was a car accident, someone screaming, get me out, would be a very logical piece to listen to. The next piece is bizarre, and this is where we start to electronically change things a little bit. This is right off of number nine, and there's a, a baby crying, and someone's saying over it, who's to know? This is at normal speed. Who's to know? Who's to know? Now that is, again, what it sounds like at normal speed. What we did is we slowed down the who's to know to, I'd say, approximately half the normal speed. And if you accept the hypothesis that there was a car accident, tell me if this doesn't sound like a man groaning to get out of it. And what you just heard there is essentially what sparked Paul is Dead in the first place. And the fact that it was Revolution 9, A, helped redeem the song artistically with fans to a certain degree, and B, gave the conspiracy some extra legs as it hit the ground running, because it answered some unanswerable questions as to what Revolution 9 can possibly be about. Oh, it's about that! Well, now it makes sense. Even now, most people don't really know what the avant-garde is or what Revolution 9 was trying to achieve, and to have this meaning ascribed to Lennon's magnus opus of nonsense meant that the conspiracy gave a certain sense of closure to fans and listeners, whilst also opening a new door to a much stranger landscape of Beatles conspiracydom. Only a northern song. Moving on, and just like the last episode, we only have one single brief stop at Yellow Submarine Station in Yellow Submarine Country in Pepperland with only a northern song. And this one is down to whether you think at all that George is alluded to the Paul is Dead conspiracy or whether these lyrics were bog-standard ones that he wrote down in an attempt to bash out a song on the toilet in 30 minutes. This song contains several references to the fact that Paul might have a replacement. It also re references the ensuing disharmony in the band, such as, you know, when you're listening late at night, you may think the band is not quite right. When you're listening late at night You may think the band are not quite right But they are They just played like that well, the band's not quite right because it's not Paul on bass anymore or Paul on piano or Paul singing anymore. You may think the band's a little dark and out of key. If you think the harmony is a little dark and out of key You're correct There's nobody there yeah, the tone of the music might be a little bit darker now because they're just surrounded by death and suits and Satanist lizard people all the time. I'd be a little bit dark and out of key as well. And then he announces, there's nobody there. Maybe there is no Paul. Maybe there is no single one. Maybe it's just a code name like James Bond. One fake Paul dies, they replace him with another one. Maybe that's why Paul is able to tour till he's 80. Oh, again, by the way, I'm going to see Paul McCartney. Let it be. And finally, we move on to the album whereby the Beatles are kind of asking the world to possibly put a rest to this whole Paul is dead thing, AKA let it be. And the clue for this album in truly handy fashion is hidden in the title song. So let's just hear the chorus for that right now. I'll be shocked if you hadn't heard it before.
And there we are. That is classically one of the three siren choruses that Paul is doomed to sing until the end of time or Ragnarok. Nothing new there. But if we take that phrase, let it be, and play it backwards once again, you get this. Did you catch that? One more time, please. <laughs> yeah, rather shockingly, if you play the song Let It Be and play the title phrase backwards, again, don't know about you, but it, for me, it clearly becomes He's Dead. Let's hear it forwards again. And now backwards. I would say leave the answers up to you uh, for this part, but that's quite clearly the fake Paul McCartney, William Campbell Shears, sending us a backwards message hidden in a pop song to alert us that he is the imposter. He can't contain it any longer. It's like that documentary. Well, the guilt and the lies are just compiling up and he has found the perfect phrase that when sung forward will be a phrase that will be, be able to be played backwards to reveal the clue. They've probably gone through hundreds of phrases, hundreds of different songs and titles and different things like that to find this perfect title. But they found it, it happened to be, let it be, they're definitely going to use it. Well, duh, when you explain it like that, of course it makes sense. And there we are, folks. That's pretty much every major and a few minor Paul is Dead audio clue that I could find slash bother to include for the episode for time constraint reasons. Now, this is probably the most explosive and pervasive aspect of the whole conspiracy as it has been the one constant that has been there literally from the start throughout the entire run of the whole thing. Before the internet, before the photo comparisons that we're about to move on to, before the magazines and the newspaper articles, before even the fucking album covers were even a twinkle in the Paul is Dead eye, we had the clues in the music. And whilst I go in, in, into detail on the very first radio broadcasts that discussed Paul is Dead later on in the next episode, like I said, I will still mention, though, that the idea of listening for signs of hidden meaning and playing music backwards for the same effect is the very idea, the crux of the whole concept that captured people's minds, attentions and imaginations all those years ago. It's one of the most important parts of the conspiracy and why it appeals to so many people. I mean, it's pretty much foolproof and failproof when you think about it. The number of people who have seen the album covers for the Beatles albums, you know, silly as it is, probably even pales in comparison to the sheer number of people who have heard the music and its mass familiarity allows thousands, if not millions, if not billions of people to analyse the music or subconsciously listen to the music, take it in and draw their own conclusions. It's not like the Beatles are some obscure band. No, these guys have been constantly played pretty much from 1964 onwards, 24-7, non-stop. Seriously, non-stop. And the position their music has in the public consciousness is truly incomparable, making the Paul is Dead conspiracy having the biggest non-political built-in fan base of any of these tales in history. And what you just heard was the beginning of all of that. Audio Clues Part 2. Fall's Voice. For the sake of full transparency, originally this was not in the lineup for today's episode, and it most certainly is the smoking gun element that allowed this second clue segment of an episode to be a whole episode in its own right. At first, I wanted to do all of the smaller, quirkier elements of all of the Paul is Dead phenomena in, in part one, and this is going to be a, a slightly shorter segment than the other two on this episode. But I was trawling through the annals of 
the dark corners of the weird web as you have to for this Paul is Dead malarkey. And like I said on the last episode, sometimes you'll think you've covered every aspect of a topic and you, th you think you've got it locked down and then there's just another website you find and it just opens up a whole nother can of worms. And the topic I'm going to be talking about now has actually been propagated mostly by uh, one blog which is called Plastic Macca and it's written by Tina Foster. Uh, I, I would love to get Tina on the show. I would, I would, I'm desperate to talk to Tina about a lot of her theories and her take on the Paulie's Dead conspiracy. She's one of the main prop uh, proponents of it. I, I, I believe she's written a book on it now as well actually. And this topic's existence makes sense when you think about it. Uh, we've had the audio clues in the music and we've been listening for clues for a Paul. But unfortunately, all of those albums are studio mastered, they are altered, they are warped. We even know that the real Paul on very early Beatles tracks even modified his own voice on them. So to trust any voice or any possible pre-recorded voice on any Beatles album would be very hard to prove that it, you know, whether it was or wasn't our Paul. However, in the real world, it's going to be much more difficult to fake that on a consistent basis, especially when you've got things like live shows, uh, live broadcasts out onto TV and onto the internet, as, as well as the fact now that everyone and anyone in the world can have a camera on their phone and record anything you say at any time. We're going to be looking at not the lyrics or actual clues and references to the conspiracy itself, but we are going to be looking at the very voice that is a part of the conspiracy. We are going to be looking at both the words of Paul McCartney as how they are sung and how that singing voice has changed over the years, and also we are going to be looking at the Paul McCartney spoken voice and the impersonation that Paul has been doing of Paul ever since. So yeah, this is um, a little more of a fun element of the Paul is Dead conspiracy, at least for me just making this for you, just because we get to go outside of the Beatles here. We get to go past the breakup of the band. We get to look at Paul in the outside wider world, some of his time with Wings, some of his time as a solo act as well. And it's nice to see the evolution of the conspiracy, not only over time but over Paul's career and we get to see how the conspiracy is able to support the fact that Paul has been you know touring and making music for the past 50-ish years since the breakup of the Beatles. But enough of all that academic chit chat we all know that William Campbell Shears was not born Paul McCartney it's a very obvious statement and ergo it means that the man William Campbell Shears would not have the voice of Paul McCartney, whether the speaking voice or the singing one. The real Paul honed his voice over many years of touring and late night gigs and singing in the studio all day long and what came out of that was a very distinctively unique and recognisable rock and roll vocal. Whether it was his soft dulcet tones on And I Love Her. I give her all my love that's all I do And if you saw my love You'd love her too I love her His growl on tracks like She's a Woman I know that she's no present Only ever has to give me love for 
even his little Richard Howell, as heard on Long Tall Sally. I'm gonna tell it, Now, from those three clips, we can tell two things. One, that the Beatles are fucking awesome. And two, that we all clearly know that that is most certainly the voice of one James Paul McCartney. But if the Cabal, the satanic Illuminati lizard people, were able to convince Billy Campbell Shears to go along with this whole story and, you know, go along with all the plastic surgery that would, al that would alter and scar his face forever, they would still not be able to fully recreate the one-off vocal cords that lay inside the throat of the now-deceased Paul McCartney, possibly the now-decapitated Paul McCartney. This resulted in the new Fall, the fake Paul, having only a passing similarity to the voice of our original Paulie. But thanks to the fact that Paul had been known to do things such as smoking and quote-unquote aging, this got swept under the rug as being totally normal. Fall would have, of course, had vocal lessons, possibly even surgery on his own vocal cords to alter his speech and singing. It is not impossible to assume that the Cabal would have impressionists that would help fall Billy Shears with his voice as well. Impersonation is a skill. A skill can be taught by certain people. If certain people are willing to learn certain skills and put in the effort as well. And if you've had plastic surgery to turn your face into Paul McCartney, I think you'd put the effort into working on your fucking impression. This effort would get him pretty far throughout his career, but due to the existence of mass media, the internet, and those meddling kids, Fall has been unable to hide the fact that he's unable to be on top of his Paul McCartney impression A-game 100% of the time. I mean, I know more than any other podcaster how difficult it is to maintain a consistently not completely shit Paul McCartney accent. And when it comes to doing a Paul McCartney impression, like, say, Michael Caine or Rob De Niro, it's equally about the mannerisms and the unique phraseology that he uses, making sure to get in all of the ums and ahs and you knows and the nose scratches and the head tilts and the nodding, and it's, uh, you know, very important. And for me, as someone who does a terrible Macca impression, it must be hell to live as Fall Billy Shears' fake Paul all day long. Oh, a living hell just having to be Macca all day, every day. I mean, I know I'm, I'm going to see the guy, but I wouldn't want to be him. Like, the pressure of being Paul. Only a certain type of guy could have been Paul McCartney. And maybe only one guy could really could have naturally been Paul. And now this guy's been thrust into this position of power. Thrust so high up through the social stratas and class ladders in society. And he's just been placed at the top. And... Has to kind of be cool with it. Not sure if I could do that. Now, let us re-familiarise ourselves with a few choice clips of our young pre-66 Macca voice with a couple of interview clips. Okay, here's the first one. This is Paul speaking with David Frost in 64. We got a record contract. We said, let's get a number one hit. Got one of them. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I went on. It, we, you know, we do it in stages, so... We never but thought you, after you've got a number one hit, you hoped for another number one hit, did you? Yeah. Then what? Um, something like the Royal Variety performance. And something then? sort of big, I think. Yeah. Then, uh, what came after that? America, I think. Yeah, which was marvellous. And after America? The film. Now, it's fairly close to the film being as big a success as everything else, I should think. 
Now, if it is in sort of a bit later this year, a big success, mm. what will be the next ambition then? I don't know. Uh, another film, probably. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's that about the only success. And what about after that? Oh, don't ask me. You know, I'm, I'm only doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got any ambitions, in fact, in uh, in other spheres completely? I mean, do you want to be prime minister one day? Or, I mean, no. does that sort of thing? No, uh, I don't want to be. No, nothing like that. No. Retire, you know, that's quite Retire. <laughs> and when do you think you'll achieve that ambition, in fact? The way things are going in a couple of years or something. No, I don't, I don't but no idea. What, when people usually ask you what's the best thing about being one of the Beatles at this stage, mm. uh, what you usually reply the money as a, the first quip as fact, but what after that's one of the good things? Um, being able to, to do things that you, you enjoy doing. Rather than if, you know, you get a bit of power when you sort of, you know, you reach a certain stage where you get a bit of power, and in that you can say, suggest things that you want to do to people. Now we can turn around to Brian and say, um, you know, could we do such and such a thing, like a film? And he can say, well, I'll try and fix it, boy. Yeah. So, you know, and, he, and he, he does, he's good like that, you know. So, yeah. Useful man to have about. Oh, he's, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. And let's have another one. This time we have Paul talking to Malcolm Searle at the Southern Cross Hotel, Melbourne, on June 15th, 64. Well, do you meet the kind of people you'd like to meet? Occasionally. Always. You don't always. Of course you don't. Well, you don't, do you? No, but I mean, you know, we occasionally do. We've got friends of ours, and so friends are the people you like to meet. Works, doesn't it? Uh, so, you know, we meet our friends, uh, sounds a bit daft, we meet our friends, but, you know, that's true. We do get to meet the people we want to meet. And we meet people on tours like this that we like, and we get to know them. If there's anyone we especially like, you know, we'll always sort of make arrangements to see them again, sort of thing. There's always ways of getting to know people you like. I mean, it's, it's not, we're not protected to that extent. How much are you protected, actually? I mean, what, no, what, what are you doing today, tonight? Well, probably nothing, but I, I just don't want to do anything tonight. If I wanted to do anything, like, I mean, I, what is there to do? You know, go out to the pictures or something, which I don't fancy anyway. Um, you know, but that, that's the thing, I don't really want to do anything now. I don't, somebody asked me if I wanted to go sightseeing, but um, I can see quite a lot from me, <laughs> from this window. Okay, let's go back slightly earlier to 63, to an, an interview that the Beatles gave with the late, the great Ken Dodd. Rest in peace, Ken. And here's a snippet of Macca in that. No. I, 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 I think so, you know. Well, we, well, we'd like to get... He was glad to get rid of him. Oh, yeah. There you go. No, we'd like to get back more than we do. But it's not always possible, you know. Uh, how do you and finally let's hear an excerpt from this macatastic interview where the journalist in question really gets to the heart of who Paul McCartney is as a musician as a poet as an artist and th this was conducted uh, April 3rd 64 as well Paul could I have your age height and when's the record gonna be please uh 21 5'11 uh and the next record's going to be out soon, but I don't know when. Which do you prefer, mods or rockers? Um, don't know. I, I, I like any of them. Uh, mockers, I like. I think they're the best. 
no real preferences. Why is it, Paul, that you're always described as the most intelligent one of the Beatles? Are you? Uh, no, I'm not. No, no. Well, John's written a book, you know, so he must be more intelligent than me. Thanks. You've got to be intelligent to write books. Um, Paul, is it true you're going to get engaged to Jean Asher? No, it's not true. Um, the papers started off by saying I was I was already engaged. Now the papers tell me I'm married, and uh, they think uh, they tell me I'm divorced now. So you know, I don't. Maybe I'm married. I'm oh, sorry. Maybe I am married. I don't know. The papers tell me I'm. I don't think I am. Yeah. I'm not getting engaged. No. So. That was none other than the indisputably cool Macca speaking in his deceptively Birmingham-esque Liverpool accent. And that's Birmingham, UK for you Yanks. Paul's voice, whilst not as iconic as, say, John's or Ringo's, is still immediately identifiable, even outside the company of the other three Beatles. And therefore, it's a pretty difficult one to pull off. I mean, I'm not saying people would be on the lookout for this stuff and many people would never have met Paul McCartney anyway so wouldn't actually know, but since we now know the truth behind the death of Paul McCartney, the inconsistencies in Fall's voice become all the more apparent. Enough talk now. Although I am enjoying these little 10 second breaks from talking, but let's just have a sample of how well or how well, badly, shall we say, Fall slash Billy Shears slash Billy Campbell slash fake Paul has been doing this Paul McCartney quote-unquote impression over the last few years. Let's see how he's been doing. Okay, first up, let's have an interview from the period right after Paul supposedly passed on through to the other side, aka the Sgt Pepper era, aka late 1966. It's a bit too controlled, you know, because you suddenly, you, you want to go and do something and somebody says, oh, no, subsection B, close A. You can't do that, you know. And you say, well, why not? Because, uh, you know, I'm human being and that, and haven't I got my rights? I said, well, yes, but you're not allowed to do that. He said, well, you know, if it inter doesn't interfere with anyone, it must be okay. And they said, sorry, it still isn't, you know. So people have suddenly, I think a lot of people have twigged that this, uh, they've shut themselves in a bit, you know. They've got all these rules for everything, rules of how to live, how to paint, how to make music. And it's just not true anymore, you know. They don't, they don't work all those rules because you can't apply them because it means then that you're assuming that you know it all, you know, and primitive man, us, and something else, you know, and, and we don't know it all yet. They're talking about things that are a bit new and they're talking about things which people don't really know too much about yet. And so, you know, people sort of put them down a bit and say, well, you know, weirdo, psychedelic and things. But it's really just what's going on around, and they're just trying to look into it a bit. And these other people are looking into what, what else it is, you know, and what else its possibilities are. And it's a straight sort of inquiry that they're doing. They're not doing anything strange. You know, everyone's talking aloud. Everyone's talking to themselves, really. They're just all talking aloud, and they, they help each other, you know, by saying various ideas about things. It's a good environment, you know, if there's a whole gang of people that like cider, and you're a cider addict, then it's nice to be with them, you know. And there we have it, folks. The first documented voice of William Campbell Shears, Fall Fake Paul. And, you know, there seems to be, you know, a certain, you know, tick that Fall relies, you know, on to get him through the sentence. 
you know? I mean, fair play to the chap. It's pretty. It's a pretty spot-on impression. The Scouse undercurrent is perfect, and a lot of the intonations are very well done. But once you hear the differences, you can't unhear them and move on with the rest of your life. No, 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 no. This really is imperfect. This is nervous. This is reliant on hooks and audio tricks that are there to misdirect you into thinking you heard what you wanted to hear, but in fact, it wasn't. It was something else. It was many things indeed, but it wasn't Paul. Moving on to one of Fall's major initiatives set to him by the Cabal, possibly, which was to push a certain MK Ultra mind-bending drug agenda onto the youth of the UK and subsequently the world, as famously discussed here in this 1967 interview with a random journalist who just kind of showed up at Macca's pad. Have you taken LSD? About four times. And where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything, it's silly to say that. Don't you believe that this was a, a matter which you should have kept private? Mm, but the thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper. And the decision was whether to tell a lie or to uh, tell him the truth, you know. I decided to tell him the truth. But I, I really didn't want to say anything, you know, because if I had my decision, uh, you know, if I had it my way, I wouldn't have told anyone, you know, because I'm not trying to spread the word about this. But the man from the newspaper is the man from the mass medium, you know. I'll keep it a personal thing. If he does too, you know, if he keeps it quiet. But he wanted to spread it, so it's his responsibility, you know, for spreading it, not mine. But you're a public figure, and you said it in the first place, and you must have known that it would, made, would have made the newspapers. Yes, but to say it, you know, is only to tell the truth. I'm telling the truth, you know. I don't know what everyone's so angry about. Well, do you think you have now encouraged your fans to take drugs? I don't think it'll make any difference, you know. I don't think my fans are going to take drugs just because I did, you know. But the thing is, that's not the point anyway, you know. I was asked whether I had or not. And then from then on, the whole bit about how far it's going to go and how many people it's going to encourage is up to the newspapers and up to you, you know, on television. I mean, you're spreading this now at this moment. This is going into all the homes, you know, in Britain. And I'd rather it didn't, you know. But you're asking me the question. You want me to be honest. I'll be honest, you know. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility to lots and No, lots it's of you've teenagers. got the responsibility. You've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing, if you will too. If you'll shut up about it. And as you can hear from this, not only is Fall ensuring that a mass amount of young, impressionable people end up being enslaved by mind-altering government substances to make them more docile, but he's also doing it very poorly, with too much emphasis on the O's and O's, in Paul McCartney's vocal repertoire, as well as clearly needing to slow down somewhat. This isn't as fast as Paul speaks at all. At least he will get another few stabs at it over the next 40 years or so. Now, let's have an interview from just around the time that the Beatles were actually dissolving like a slug under salt. This is taken from Merseyside Radio in 69. Take it away, fake Paul. Well, Paul, you've been married, what, a couple of months now? Couple of months, yeah. Uh, what's it like um, being the, the last of the Bachelor Beatles, now you're married? It's terrible, you know. <laughs> That's okay, you know. It's the same as... Uh, every, uh, the same as being married for everyone, you know. It's married. 
Yeah. We're liking it anyway. Yes, it's fine. Yeah. It's meant to you, of course, that you've got an instant family as well. You've got a daughter. Yes, age six, young Heather, who's starstruck and a starstruck and would love to be on the programme, but uh, I've put her back in the box. <laughs> so how do you get on with her in back? Oh, great. She's a great kid, you know. She's lovely. Mm. Does she, I mean, do you see much of her, in fact? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, you know, because I don't sort of go out to work, so the only time I don't see her when she's at school, you know. Mm. Oh, I see and read good night stories and all that stuff, you know. Mm. You take her out much? Yeah, sure. Well, we're going on holiday today, you know, so I've got her off school for a bit. Mm. So we're off. I see a lot of her, you know. Mm. Where are you going for your holidays? Going to France, try and get a bit of sunshine. Uh, how long will you be away? Uh, I hope in all to be away for about a month, you know, because we've got nothing on for the next month. And we've had a lot on for the past couple of months, as you might have heard from a couple of newspapers here and there. So I'm just trying to get a break now, you know. Yeah, well, well, tell us about what, in fact, you have got on, Paul. Uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff, you know, we've had uh, a lot of stuff happening down at Apple. You know, and uh, we've been making records ourselves. We've been working until like, four in the morning making records and stuff, you know. And uh, the Northern Songs bid has been on, you know, so it's been high finance down there for the last couple of months. But it seems to be going okay now, you know. So I'm just taking a break, get away from it all. Oh, fuck off, Foley boy, Mr. Fake, Mr. Fraud. Who do you think you're fooling with this rubbish? With every improvement, there is an equally important fuck-up whereby you let something slip. And we all heard it. You know what I'm talking about. That obvious yet subtle difference between the two voices at two separate times in two separate places. <laughs> I haven't been fooled. <laughs> and I don't think you have either. Now, let's jump right back into a clip from 1976 during Paul's brief return to American Godhood during his Wings Over America tour. This isn't going to be from the live album. Obviously, that could be doctored as well. But this is from an interview during Wings' time travelling over the States. Let's hear you, Paul. Go on. You're, what, 31 now? 33. Wow, 33, that's a bit old for rock and roll. Do you think you're past the Ancient, ancient. Well, I'll tell you what, you come to the show... Do you think and after the show, I don't know. I wouldn't be here if I thought I was. But you come to see the show, and if you like the show, you tell me if I'm over my peak after it, okay? Any right. news of the... Um, and if you tell me I am, oh, it's coats off outside cover. <laughs> All right? Thank you very much. Paul. All right, cheers. Ta-da, Perhaps Billy Campbell felt a little more comfortable in letting his voice go a little lax since he was away from the motherland and all, and the subtle inconsistencies in his accent would not as be readily picked up upon over there as it would be here, because this is a Cod McCartney if there ever was one. It's really poor. Another theory is that Paul's voice was a little hoarse from the constant stadium gigs and performances during Wings Over the World, and this rather shoddy vocal mimicry was just a result of all of that. A bit like George Harrison at the end of his touring days. It's pretty obvious, right? I mean, it's all plain to hear for all, surely. No? Well, then listen closer to this clip of Paul in the 80s. What, me? Nervous? No. Terrified. <laughs> but do, do you keep your fingers crossed, are you? Very much so, and anything else I can find. <laughs> or, or it's offered to you. Well, yes, this is right. Get some it, before we actually take a trip to Broad Street, uh, can we go a little bit down memory lane? Yes, um, Russell. Can we? <laughs> yes, I. Did you talk like that in them Russell days? Russell 
I've seen you all telly rustled by gum. You're not like you are. Nah, we've supped some stuff. Oh, by eh? God, we've supped some stuff. We don't get out much, do no, we? No, we don't. We don't get out much. Oh. Now then, was there always music in the family? For me, yeah. Um, my dad and his father before him had been into music. Uh, his father was in like a brass band. He used to play um, called the E flat bass, the big oompa. And my dad um, was in like a jazz band called Jim Max Jazz Band. Yeah. And he used to play trumpet and piano till his teeth gave out and it was just piano. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that. your dad on That's that my one. dad, bottom right of the screen. You see the resemblance? Yeah. And that, then you go, there's a lady to his left and then now, I'm going to get this wrong. My family's going to kill me, but I think that's my Uncle Jack. Oh, he's a nice right, lad, lad, your Uncle Jack. He was a grand lad, was Jack. <laughs> <laughs> he used to play trombone. I think that's him, anyway, and a couple of other mates who were in the band. Now, was your mother encouraging you to play music at all? Yeah, she wasn't really very musical. It was mainly my dad was the, the musician who used to sit around playing the piano and stuff. My mum used to uh, whistle a bit. <laughs> well, you remember those things, don't you? Your mum whistling. Out in the kitchen, you know. What was she? She was a nurse. Was she? A uh, midwife, yeah. She was a midwife and then later a health visitor. Still no? Okay, let's try a clip of Paul in the 90s. Listen closer. <laughs> okay. Uh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, man. What's well, he like? He's a good lad. Um, is he? No, 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 whoa. Oh, can you right, honestly right. say Michael Jackson <laughs> so is a good lad? <laughs> I know we're keeping it shallow, Okay, no? fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now, he's, uh, I don't know him so well these days. We've kind of fallen out a little bit over one or two things. But I... We've fallen I, out over oh, Beatles songs. Yeah. Because he actually, owns them all, doesn't he? Well, he actually only, only owns half of them now. I think it's dwindling fast or something. So, oh, it's all very uh, controversial. If, all he, if he hit hard times financially, would you attempt to buy them back off him? Well, it's not him anymore. It's Sony. Oh. It's all moved, you know. I mean, the thing is, you know, you, I don't think I'd ever attempt to buy them back. Because, you see, it cost me nothing to write them. And now they're like billions. <laughs> so it, I, you can't It cost me nothing to write them. That's true. That's true. It's a but shallow you, but, statement, but, but it's but, true. But you, but you, but you, bought, you bought all Buddy Holly's songs. Yeah, no, I bought those. Because what happened was, because uh, John and I, John Lennon and I, never had our own publishing. Because we were too young, you know, you know, everyone wants to get a deal. So we signed like anything and signed away all our rights and stuff. So there's no chance of me really getting them back. Mm. Um, so as I got kind of into business a bit later, I, one of my advisors said, you should get into publishing. I said, well, you know. And uh, that turned out to be buddy stuff, which is great, really, because, I mean, it's, it's a business you love. I love his stuff. So it's not like I'm dealing in brushes or... Sheds, even, yeah. you know. Although well, so, sheds, sheds could be a good line of business. Okay. Uh, are you ready for this? We're going to spin I, the wheel of cheeks. I'd like a little spin of my own, actually. Okay, do you want to spin it? You spin it. Do you want to spin the wheel of cheeks? Well, like if little... you want to spin the wheel of cheeks, you can get right ahead. Now, where's he cut? Anything? You heard that bit, right? Well, those bits. If not, here's a clip of him from the 2000s, or the noughties, as no one is calling them. Listen closer. Uh... I really wouldn't have believed it. No, um, we didn't think we would be doing it for 10 years, let alone 40, mm. you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's what's interesting about life. You think one thing, you think, oh, my life will go this way. And then things happen, things change, the world changes. And when I say, yeah, I'm very surprised to find myself still doing it. But I love it, um, and I, 
Hmm, maybe we're playing into Billy Campbell Shear's hands with this gradual take at the evolution of the fall accent. So I'm going to mix things up and I'm going to play another really early recording of the real live Paul. And then I'm going to play some stuff from this year, a.k.a. at the time of recording 2018. So let's hear the real Paul. Um, 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 uh, nothing really. I think the main changes are in people's attitude attitudes to you. How? I don't know. Um, but it's it's people who change rather than you. You know, we feel exactly the same, really. Got a new suit, though. <laughs> and now let's see how shockingly different Fall's voice sounds after 40-plus years of pretending to be someone else. Mr. McCartney? Hi there, we're with CNN. Can we just get a quick question for you? Uh, yeah. Just give us a sense of why it was important for you to come out here today. Uh, just to support the people. You know, I'm like everyone, I don't know. But th this is what we can do. And uh, so I'm here to do it. Um, one of my best friends was killed in gun violence right around here. So uh, it's important to me. Understood. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. last 10 years. keeps going on and on and on. And it keeps being relevant. Yeah, I had a dream in the 60s, where a man who died came to me in the dream and was reassuring me, saying, it's going to be okay, just let it be. Oh, I felt so, so great, you know, it's going to be great, you know. Now that we've rather roundly defined that Fall's interview voice has been a little bit inconsistent over the years, let's see if the same can be applied to his singing voice. Now, Fall, again, we decided that he would have had impressionists and vocal coaches to help him sing like Paul McCartney, but it is a pretty difficult feat to pull off. Though, if YouTube is anything to go by, then impersonators of singers are ten a penny, so who knows? As I said earlier, Paul's voice is an iconic singing voice. It's a voice that has been heard possibly more than any other on the planet by this point. The biggest Beatle hits, no matter what they tell you, were all Paul's and he, well, Fall, went on to become the most successful recording artist of all time. Can you imagine the titanic weight of such a task? Any old twat with a podcast can do a Paul McCartney voice, but can any old cunt who wins a lookalike contest possibly sing like Paul McCartney? Well, to set us up, let's have a listen to Paul's iconic ballad, Yesterday, from Help, with the album version being our baseline for what our Paulie truly sounded like. Let's have a listen to the album version of Yesterday, please. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday, suddenly. Okay, that's the standard that we all know and love. Nothing strange going on here. This is most certainly Paul, not the shill, fraud fuck that we've been milling about with today. Just to reiterate that point, let's just hear a version of Paul doing this song live whilst he too was still alive. Play the clip. And so, for Paul McCartney of Liverpool, Opportunity knocks. <laughs> Yesterday, all my 
Again, pretty familiar stuff. All of it pre-death, pre-1966, pre-Billy Shears Campbell, and all above board. Now, let's skip ahead a few years and see what Fall has in store for us. Okay, so this first clip is from Fall's first attempt at bringing in the true magic and wonderment of the Beatles into the Wings setlist. This is from Fall's demonic tour of the globe, Wings Over the World, more specifically, Wings Over America, and his version of Yesterday at this point goes a little something like this. So, thanks a lot. This one will take you back a bit, if you remember it. See how you go. Yesterday All my trouble seems so far away Now it looks as though Wow, it's even getting to the point whereby even the audiences are starting to sound like they may have been replaced by clones, doppelgangers and body doubles. But yeah, when Fall has to do it live, he really has it when it counts. But it has lost a certain charm, a certain vibrancy that the real Paul always had. Perhaps it's a little too refined, a little too formal. It lacks that boisterous, wild nature that was always brimming underneath the real Macca's skin. At least he plays the guitar well though. Let's hear him again now in the 90s when he started touring again. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh my It is here now you can see where he is slowly taking advantage of the fact that the real Paul would have indeed been becoming an older gentleman. And through abusing that fact, he is creating a voice that, when you truly stop and think about it, is not what our Paulie would have sounded like at all. Just think about it. And finally, let's see the final transition to the point at which Paul does not even sound like a shell, a husk of the former man that he once was or used to be. And this is a clip from Paul in his 2013 turn at Tokyo Dome, which is also a show that I did a gig review for, so download that as well, check that out. But run the clip of yesterday in 2013, please. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Yeah, it's not even it's not even really a parody impression of Paul at this point, is it? I mean, Christ, the voice actor that the Beatles cartoon shorts had were more faithful than this. The Yellow Submarine voice was more faithful than this. And I mean, the voice that we have presented to us now, as if it has always been the voice of the real Paul McCartney, is just, it's just not, it, it just 
it doesn't work and we're being treated like we're all crazy and it is in fact the biggest taunt and flaunt of power of them all. The Cabal is laughing that we're taking this seriously. Oh my god, they still believe that this shoddy workman is Paul McCartney. We've gotten away with it and they have. Unless we can spread the message, you know. We've just got to stop being so gullible and low frequency and make some more positive energy. Maybe even get a few crystals and a few candles on the go. Rather similarly to the way that Paul's music has this tendency to play the long game and not force itself upon the listener in one go, Fall and his impression of the real Paul McCartney has had the aid of time in furthering his sordid agenda. We're too far past the breaking point and the point of no return now. It's been 45 years now. For us to turn around and say that the Fall voice doesn't quite sound like the real Paul McCartney now is a little bit moot. We really should have caught it a little bit sooner if we're going to complain now. On top of that, there's this kind of symbiotic parallel degradation of what we know to be the voice of Paul McCartney as there are ever fewer, ever more dwindling numbers of actual people who can actually remember with a first-hand experience what the actual voice of Paul McCartney sounded like. And coincidentally, the two people who had known Paul the longest and had probably heard Paul speak the most were also subsequently killed. Hmm... And save for snippets of archival footage, it's really hard to know what the real Paul did sound like anymore and where the fake Paul really started doing it well or if he ever did it well or if it's mostly just us and our own internalised need for us to believe and for us to need that to be the real voice of Paul McCartney. Maybe Fall got better as our expectations subsequently got worse. All you need to do as well, just for you audiophiles, for you tech heads, is just to take a look at the audio of Paul singing a song uh, and Fall singing the same song and just placing them side by side of each other and you will easily see the differences in the audios, the different spikes, the different intonations, the different shapes and the way the words flow and how he takes up and builds a phrase. On paper and in your earphones, they sound the same, but when you look at the audio construction, you will see clear as day that it is two different voices singing the same songs. I'll post you a link below just to show you what I mean, but yeah, enough of sounds. Enough of sounds now. All this editing and clip finding is driving me to an early grave. I'm going to let you go and do some of the work now. You can take the load off my shoulders. Side note also for this next bit, make sure you check out all the links in the description. It will be paramount for you understanding what I'm going to be talking about. And I'll be going through them in order. But yeah, let's devolve back to some more visual clues. Photographic evidence. The next segment we're going to be going through is possibly the one that is least suited for the audio format, even probably less so than the album covers that we did on the last episode, because not only are we going to be looking at some visual clues, but there are also some of the more nuanced and subtle and most obscured clues in the entire conspiracy. And on top of that, outside of the ever politically unreliable Google, they're not available widely en masse to the public. But hey, we can hardly leave this stuff out. The images of Paul in side-by-side -side comparisons with the supposedly fake Paul are mainstays of clickbait theories and Facebook posts for Paul is deadheads. So, Paul McCartney has died. Bang, he has split his fucking head open and he's gone. 
and whether for money or for dark reasons, you have to get a guy who recently won a Paul McCartney lookalike competition or came second in a Paul McCartney lookalike competition, and you're going to get him, and you're going to get him to go along with this whole rigmarole. Okay, fine. That's kind of acceptable, because that's the easy part. At the end of the day, this William Billy Shears Fall Campbell would not look identically like Paul McCartney. And it's not like 1897 or anything where like the only form of cataloging someone's appearance is like a lithograph or a stencil or something. No, no, we, we have full moving pictures and it's not the Soviet Union. So you can't just go back and doctor the entire history of Paul McCartney. Oh, no, no. Paul always had one eye and blonde hair. The Beatles were built on their image and Paul is a quarter of four of the most famous faces on the planet. Not any face will do and William Campbell would have to endure some pretty horrendous and invasive and irreversible surgeries to secure the details of Paulie's little face. As we know, there was a supposed other car crash that the Beatles press office and the wider uh, media in general were actually in fact allowed to report about. This was in fact the crash that killed Paul but it was just written off as something quite minor. And coincidentally, around this time, Paul stopped making as many public appearances. Why? Well, because the cabal during this period were busy getting Billy Shears ready for the public. But they knew they didn't have long before public demand for visual confirmation of Paul would start to reach critical mass. The fact that Campbell looked rather close to Paul meant that they could minimise the amount of surgery needed as well as the amount of recovery time needed to heal before they could get him ready. This meant that they had the fake Paul out in time and ready for the very first music video ever made, which is a pretty perfect do-or-die demo for this Paul is Dead thing, and that was Paperback Writer and Rain, of course. And whilst both videos would be released to fantastic acclaim and iconic status, the fake Paul wasn't exactly perfect. And they would constantly go back and alter things and touch things up and tighten this and strip that. This is coincidentally around the time also that the band stopped touring, so Paul was seen in public even less and less and less. But you can see these little alterations from album to album, from music video to music video, and especially in stuff like Strawberry Fields Forever, where Paul looks very strange and stretched indeed. The surgeons altered his mouth, his chin was fully rebuilt, his nose was made shorter, even his hands and part of his body were reshaped. The eyelids, the cheeks and the chin had to be increased at first with gelatin-based makeup, then later with time-limited underskin filler injections when they were out in public or when photos were there to replicate Paul McCartney's face with accuracy. This would have to be topped up either a couple of days prior or on the day. Fall would have to wear contact lenses to darken his naturally blue-green coloured eyes. It was a marvel of modern medicine and a massive undertaking for the surgeons, all of whom would have had to have been silenced or bribed in their own way. But it wasn't perfect. I mean, they were they were quite discreet, but you know that even after all the attempts, they never got any closer to duplicating the true cleft in the chin that Paul had. His teeth were always noticeably different. The nose just still never kind of felt right. It was always it was always just a little bit off. And most notably, there was a scar from the surgery that ran from his lip up to, to just past his nose. It's faint, but it's there, all right. Again, that's where the cider and pepper moustache came from. It was a fake moustache. Was a fake moustache. So we're going to dive right into the photographic evidence now. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, make sure that you are, are clicking all the links below so that you'll know what I'm talking about. This whole conspiracy, again, is very interactive, very hands-on. And this whole process of gathering this information 
has kind of gamified the side-by-side -side comparison element of it. And I want you to join along in this big game of Spot the Difference. It's easy. I'm going to be taking two photos per link. There'll be a photo either on the left or right of Paul and vice versa of the fake Paul on the other opposite side. And we'll be looking at the differences and see what has changed over time and what the surgeons couldn't perfect. I know this whole kind of segment is a little bit similar to a podcast they're having a, a, a ventriloquist or a, or a magician on or something. But trust me, let's run with this. So let's just start off with the first link. Let's see what evidence we have here. Ah, yes, the first image we are working with today is about confirming the man who uh, is featured in the White Album poster. This is the little passport-style photo that you see at the bottom left of the White Album's famous poster. And this image is overlaid with the infamous Billy Shears image of Paul McCartney on the Sgt. Pepper's Cart Club Band rear cover. These two photos overlaid and line up pretty conclusively indicating that they are the same person. The head's the right shape, the eyes are pretty much in the exact same place, and the nose doesn't budge a little bit. As always, I like to start strong. Okay, click the next image now. This second one focuses on Paul's eyebrows, and this is possibly one of the more obvious photographic clues, uh, if, if such a thing exists. But if you look at the images on the left, you'll see a much longer, much thicker eyebrow that curves much further around the face, one of the true Paul. And then on the right, with Mr. William Campbell, the eyebrow is considerably shorter and comes to this pointy little wispy end rather than the thick eyebrow on the left. Those follicles are not from the same brow. Let's move on to the third image now. I like to think of myself here with like a large projector in a lecture room or something. So this third image annoyingly breaks the left-right rule that we've been following thus far, but coming in, we have the image of the real younger Paul on the right, and you'll quite plainly see that he has browny hazel eyes, but the older Fall on the left, well, there's no real erudite way to put this one, folks. He's got fucking green eyes, man. You can see it. You can't explain that shit. You can't tell me he did some sort of double David Bowie and bashed both his eyes different colours, can you? Those eyes are not in the same fucking skull. Following on, I'm going to move on to Paul's chin for the fourth image. As we can see here, with this bit of evidence, we can see two left side profile images of Paul, with the left one being the real Paul, being characterised by a much smoother curved chin shape that moves right on down into the neck, and that contrasts against Fall on the right. And whilst to be fair to them, they've got on the front of the chin pretty much down, underneath the chin is a far different affair, it's far larger, far podgier, and the two different chins clearly do not belong to the same man. This chin is a smoking gun, ladies and gentlemen. The next image comes possibly during From Over the Wings Over the World Tour. Let's just click that now. And for this fifth image, I'd like to draw your attention to Paul's ears. And in the earlier photo on the left, you can obviously see that Paul has these very smooth, very rounded earlobes, where the fake Paul on the right has these very large, very pronounced, very untrustworthy liar earlobes. And they are simply not the same earlobes from the same man. The next two images are quite interesting indeed. They are concerned with one element of this conspiracy that the Cabal would actually not be able to replicate within their doppelgangery. Just check out both images there, number number six and seven, and what you'll see is that, you know, unfortunately, the Cabal could not hide the fact that William Campbell was a couple of inches taller than the original Paulie. You couldn't just chop off a bit of someone's leg and call it a day 
and in these two photographs you will see side by side just how, you know, when compared to both Jane Asher and George Harrison respectively, that after some sort of certain event, Paul seems to spurt a genuine couple of inches on both of those people. It's not crazy fringe science, you can just look at the photos yourself. Okay, I'm going to be honest here, it's quite, it's probably quite clear that I'm not making as much of an effort to remain as impartial with this particular set of evidence. I really thought this um, section of the show whereby I'm, I'm showing you these these visual images in, the, in this kind of shot-by-shot, shit-by-shit comparison stuff would have been a little bit more convincing. Like, I was really willing to be shown stuff where I'd be like, oh my god, that's, it's, clearly, it's clearly two different people, that's Billy Shears. And not a lot is coming through at the moment. A lot, a lot of the evidence in these past two episodes has been quite interesting and, and compelling in their own way, but these just genuinely seem to be basic, disingenuous manipulations of photographic imagery. I mean, yeah, some of these photos make you stop and look for a second to indulge the conspiracy. But there's also this horrendously common and frequently seen amount of shitty photo fits that are just flooding the net and clogging the stream of better Paul is dead material. I really want to show you what I mean here and set the wheat apart from the chat. And it'll mean I'm allowed to pad this segment out a little bit longer with the more implausible, silly, and pointless photo comparisons that plague my Facebook feed. Like, they are admittedly very shitty. And not only do they not convince you, but they're also obviously glaringly flawed in their delivery and execution, and it actively detracts from your belief in the Paul is Dead reality. So I thought I would go through them right now, and you can share the pain with me. Here we have what is quite clearly a picture of a young man named Paul McCartney and the older McCartney shot from the same angle and are made to be about the same size and from what I can see there are literally no differences between the two. Like, I don't know what the photo is trying to draw my attention to. I know that there's maybe meant to be some sort of accompanying text somewhere from uh, from, from from the book that it's, it's taken from but nothing is jumping out to me and you know what? That's a testament to the surgeons who worked on Billy Shear's face because it almost looks like he never died at all and just grew up into some sort of older version of himself with all the minor changes that come from growing old. Okay, go ahead and click the second image now. And we have a picture of Paul and Fall in a before and after. And this one is seriously trying to completely disregard the completely different angles that the photos were being taken in. There's entirely different lighting conditions, probably different cameras being used, and you're trying to get me to believe that because of the natural alterations that occur from said many environmental changes, that I'm to accept that these are two different faces. Rubbish. But the more you look at it, it, it almost looks like, you know, Paul never died at all, though, and just grew up into an older version of himself with all the minor changes that come from growing old. Moving on to our third image now, and this one is possibly the most offensive to Fall or the real Paul. But yeah, in this photo, Paul is, well, he's just not himself, is he? I mean, obviously, to even the untrained eye, he's clearly too fat, too wrinkly for what the real Paul should be, too fat and wrinkly and old and shit and fake and old and fat and lying and old and rubbish and fat as well. But not only that, the big giveaway, the smoking gun as it were, is Paul's earlobes. Again, the young Paul, the real Paul, had these tight, well-kept, pristine earlobes, but these earlobes 
of the gods do not make an, an appearance. That once again, the fake, lying, shifty, snake-like earlobes of Billy Shears rear their ugly head again. Earlobes that are weighed down with the guilt of Paul's ritual sacrifice. If you ever ask me, ladies and gentlemen, those are two guilty-ass-looking earlobes if I ever saw any. The last one I want to draw your attention to, slash mouse clicks towards in this final image, is one that I only caught right at the end of writing this episode, but fuck me, is this one off the wall balmy? So just take a quick look at it, okay? We all good? So guess what you're supposedly meant to be fucking looking at an image of? Okay, take another look at fake Paul's ear, or should I say Paul's fake ear? And whilst you aren't meant to be looking for any droopy lobes or anything, what you're actually looking for is the fact that the ear does not seem to be attached to his body and looks like it's being held on like a piece of makeup or prosthetic or something. It looks really cheesy and really corny. And I found this image and many of the Im images used on today's episode on a, a website called IndianInTheMachine.com and for this website to actually claim that if the, you know, that, that A, the Cabal are real and Paul is dead is real and stuff, but then they would risk sending out this CIA doppelganger operative out there into the real world after giving him intensive, expensive facial reconstructive surgery, and they're going to risk the entire whole fucking operation, the entire cunting shebang, on sending fake Paul out there into the real world, the media camera field world, by sticking on a fucking Halloween ear onto the side of his head and calling it a day. Ridiculous. Though, I must say, it almost looks as if Paul never died at all and just grew up into an older version of himself with all the minor changes that come from growing old. And there we have it, folks. That was all the photographic evidence that I could bring myself to go through. It's not the most compelling for a podcast. It's not the most compelling for me either. But it rounds things out nicely. And there we have it, folks. That draws us to the end of this belated second part of Questionable Existence. I know some of that was indeed pretty freaky, pretty spooky, especially for those audio segments there. But I hope none of you were too disturbed by the truly convincing material that you were just exposed to in this episode. Man, I really should consider putting a disclaimer at the start of these episodes. But yeah, don't panic. This is only a theory, remember? And we've only just finished hearing the one side of the story, the conspiracist side of the story. So before you draw your own final conclusions and panic, you'll have to wait for the next episode to see what the story really is. All jokes aside, folks, I really hope you have enjoyed this episode, and more so than ever, I really hope you you, you consider that I've done some justice to the material, uh, if, if such a thing for Paul is Dead exists. We've pretty much covered the entirety of the evidence that the Paul is Deadites could throw at me now. It's not up to me to tell you what should stick. I'm not here to argue this time, just to deliver the information as effectively and hopefully as entertainingly as possible. I just wanted to present the whole gamut of the information in the conspiracy and all of the evidence to give it the best light and give the conspiracy its own fair chance to stand on it on its own two feeds, on its own terms, and present itself in the best possible case. I did this intentionally, though, to create the illusion of balance, because fuck me, if I wouldn't have the Paulie's Deadites, the Paulie's Deadheads would have been on my ass quicker than a jackrabbit, so these two episodes have been an exercise in restraint and my insurance policy for the third episode. Now, the evidence can stand on its own two feet and is ready for its own counter-offensive. It's time for me to dissect this motherfucker piecemeal and start analysing with a fine-tooth comb the real veracity of the claims being made. Again, I don't want to give too much of my feelings away on the matter, but as I'm still legally obliged to be impartial for this ep episode, I'll just say that if you enjoyed my style of podcasting during my recent I Don't Know, Come On To Me review, then you'll be certainly treated to a similarly impassioned episode. 
Again, thank you all for listening, folks. This has been Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Thank you so much. Make sure you tune in next week. Yes, I will get it out for then. Tune in next time for the final part of this Paul is Dead trilogy where I finally get to get off the fence and lay down the law. Please support our Patreon page. Links down below. Again, same for our Twitter and our Facebook, our YouTube. Leave us a five-star iTunes review and make sure all of you send me your Paul McCartney stories to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. More importantly so, please write in and let me know which of the audio clues that you got correct and which of these spot the differences that you did or did did not see please help me review all of this Paul is dead material which of it did you get which of it didn't did you spot any of the audio clues from the album covers on the last episode as well please email in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com Denny Lane is surely playing this out by this point the ever copyrightable flagged up song that Denny Lane plays no words ah fuck me I love that song oh my god holy shit I'm going to go see Paul McCartney did I mention the fact that I'm going to see Paul McCartney I'm not sure if I did mention it, but I'm going to mention it. Oh my god, I'm going to see what it's fucking hard. I am Anyway, all of the things that have been, you know, that have made these rumours, to my mind, have very ordinary logical explanations. Um, To the people's minds who prefer to think of them as rumours, then I'm not going to interfere. I'm not going to spoil their fantasy. You know, you can think of it like that if you like. However, if the end result, if the conclusion you reach is that I'm dead, then you're wrong. Because you're obviously very much alive. Because I'm alive and living in Scotland.